Good morning. My name is Adam. If you don't know me, it's great to have you with us uh, this morning as we worship God and as we now come to open up God's Word together. And as Emma mentioned a moment ago, today we land the sermon series that we've been in for a number of weeks now called Divine Design, Rediscovering the Christian Vision of Sexuality. For five weeks now, we've been painting a picture of what the Bible has to say to us about this area of our lives, our sexuality. And I hope and pray that it's been a a helpful series. I hope it's brought uh, some clarity where there may have been confusion. I know it's been challenging at times. It's been challenging to preach. But we haven't done this series to be challenging or, or controversial. We've done this series because we deeply believe that God's design is for our good and for our flourishing. And we want to understand and cherish God's design so that we can live it out in the details of our lives and our community. And today, as we come to the final sermon in this series, we can begin to take a step back and survey the picture that we've been painting in the last few weeks. And as we survey this picture, we can see that it's a beautiful and a profound picture. It tells us that God created us male and female. And this is not cosmetic or incidental, this is significant and purposeful. God created us equal but different, distinct but complementary. And God also designed men and women to come together in the one flesh union of marriage. This comprehensive union of of mind, heart and body. And this is also why God gave us the gift of sex. It is the God-given glue to unite two lives together. And it's the God-given power to create life. The biblical vision of sexuality offers us a coherent and compelling vision. But as we survey this picture that we've painted, we also need to consider some of its implications. We cannot help but notice some of the implications of this picture that we've been painting. As Todd Wilson summarises for us, he says, According to the Bible, God says yes to the sexual difference of male and female. Yes to the joining of lives to form a one flesh union called marriage. And yes to enjoying the unitive and procreative powers of sex. A divine hearty yes to it all. But with this yes comes an equally resolute no. Because according to the Bible, God says no to any and every form of sexual activity outside of this one flesh union called marriage. And God says no irrespective of the sex of the people involved. In other words, the Christian vision of sexuality says to us that sexual activity is appropriate only within the context of Marriage. And this is a perhaps difficult reality for any of us to acknowledge, but it's particularly difficult for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are single or who experience same-sex attraction. Because the Christian vision of sexuality would seem to leave them with no biblically legitimate means to express their sexual desires. 
it would seem to suggest the necessity of lifelong celibacy. And that is a challenging and a daunting thought. In fact, earlier in this series, I shared with you the story of a man named Wesley Hill. Wesley is a minister and a professor of biblical studies in the United States, and he also experiences consistent same-sex attraction. Now, Wesley affirms the Christian vision of sexuality, and he understands what this means for him. In fact, he writes very honestly and openly about his fear of, of trying to live the celibate life as a same-sex attracted Christian. He writes, he says, What I feared most about my decision to remain celibate was that I had thereby doomed myself to lifelong loneliness. Now, if you're married, you might struggle to empathise with Wesley's predicament. Maybe you're thinking, I'd like to live the single life for a few weeks. But listen to, to what Wesley is going through as he unpacks the reality of it. He says, when I was still in high school, despite being same-sex attracted, I often daydreamed about what it would be like to be married, to have a house and children, to have a home of the sort that I had growing up, to know that I belonged somewhere. Now, in light of where I felt my Christian faith was taking me, I stopped dreaming about those things. In their place, I began to have a recurrent picture of myself around age 60, coming home to an empty apartment, having lived all of my adulthood as a single man. I started to think about the particulars of that scenario, not knowing each year where I'd be for Christmas, waking up each morning to a quiet bedroom and having no one across the table from me as I ate my cereal before heading to work, coming home at the end of the day and reading a book with no one to talk about the parts of it that stood out to me. I began to resonate with what Lauren Winner has called the loneliness of the everyday. The loneliness of no one knowing if your plane lands on time. Of no one to call you back if you lock, of no one to call if you lock yourself out of your house or if your alternator dies. Now I appreciate the honesty of Wesley's struggle. And we shouldn't just sweep this under the rug. In fact, I want to ask today the question, what do we say to someone who, like Wesley, is committed to lifelong celibacy? Does the church have anything to say other than just, sorry, that's the way it is? What can we do to address the very real dilemma for Wesley and people like him? Now, the truth is there are a number of different answers to this question, but the answer that I'd like us to explore today is friendship. Friendship. One of the things that the church can do and should do is seek to restore friendship to its rightful place in our lives and in the church. In fact, Todd Wilson, again, he says, as Christians and as a faith community, we can prioritise those deep, intimate, affectionate, non-sexual relationships we call friendships. We can work to strengthen the friendship culture of the church so that the church becomes a relationally thick and rewarding place, not just for married folks, but for single and celibate people as well. Now, I wonder when the last time was that you heard a sermon on friendship. I mean, the church talks a lot about community and, and, and fellowship, but, but what about friendship? 
Does friendship have a place in the Christian vision of life and relationships? Does the Bible have anything to say about friendship? Well, the answer I'd like to suggest is yes. And this morning, I'd like to look at one of the closest examples of friendship that we have in the Bible. And of course, I'm talking about the friendship between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel. This is a profound and beautiful example of friendship. It's also a really unlikely example of friendship because it's between Israel's greatest king and the son of his sworn enemy. But it gives us a picture of what friendship could be and perhaps should be. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll be reading uh, verses 1 to 4 this morning. Now, while you're turning there, let me just catch you up on the story. Let me give you the context. Because the book of 1 Samuel tells us about Israel's transition from kind of being ruled by all of these different tribal leaders to being ruled by one centralized king. And the man who was first chosen to be the king of Israel was a man named Saul. And though he had a good start, Saul eventually disobeyed God and disqualified himself. And so a young shepherd boy by the name of David was selected to be his successor. Now initially, Saul doesn't really recognize David as a threat to his rule. And so after David defeats the Philistine warrior Goliath in chapter 17, Saul invites David into his family and into his service. And everybody loves David, including Saul, including his officials, and including his family and his son, Jonathan, as we'll see in these verses. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 18. This is what we read. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And so after seeing what David has done on the battlefield with Goliath, Jonathan so admired, so respected, so identified with David that we're told his heart was knit to him. He was devoted to him. And this is going beyond friendliness and niceness. This is intimacy and commitment and connection. And we see this commitment only intensifies in verses 3 to 4. Then Jonathan made a covenant, a binding agreement with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armour and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan totally commits himself to David, enters into a covenant with him. In fact, Jonathan gives to David his sword and his bow and his belt and his armour. And this is amazing, because Jonathan, think about it, was next in line to the throne of Israel. He was the son of the current king. And so what he's doing in giving these things to David is saying, I respect you so much that I think you would be a better king than I would. He is handing over the kingship to David. And not only that, he enters into a covenant with David. A formal agreement. He totally commits himself to David. 
And Jonathan, as we'll see later in the story, is good to his word. Because when his father Saul turns on David, Jonathan supports David in the midst of that struggle. And so this passage gives us a brief but a powerful insight into the nature of friendship. In it, we see genuine intimacy, genuine commitment, connection, affection, sacrifice, even the exchange of vows. One scholar says this is not unlike a marriage in terms of the strength of the bond. And from this passage, I think we can learn two insights that will help us recover the power and the beauty of friendship in our day. Two insights. The first one is this. We need friendship. Now, I know this might sound obvious, but it's worth explicitly acknowledging because the truth is we don't often talk about or think seriously about friendship. In fact, as a nation, particularly among men, we are prioritising friendship less and less. Social researcher Mark McCrindle is an Aussie and a Christian. He's done a bit of research in this area. He says that career-driven, family-focused and health-conscious Aussie men are crowding their lives with commitments. As a result of these pressures and competing priorities, the time available for men to kick back and relax with their mates has begun to erode. We are prioritising genuine friendship less and less as a nation. But not only that, we are trivialising friendship more and more. Now, how do I know this? Well, because according to Facebook, I have 742 friends. According to the reality of my life, that's not true. (laughs) Facebook and the Bible have a very different definition of friends. And the result of all this has been a weakening of our friendship culture, both in the church and outside the church. In fact, the reality is that in our day, it's very difficult to form deep friendships like the one that Jonathan and David had. We have lots of connections and acquaintances and networks and online friends, but we have very few deep, affectionate, lasting, non-sexual friendships. And this is not good because we need friendship. And we need friendship for many different reasons. For example, we need friendship because we were made for friendship. The Bible tells us that we were created in the image of God. And the Bible also tells us that God is a triune God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Which means at the heart of God is friendship. Affection, relationship. And because we are created in the image of this relational God, we are relational creatures. We need connection. We need relationship. We need friendship. Not only that, we need friendship because life is hard and we can't do it alone. And in fact, we even see this here in 1 Samuel chapter 18 because in chapter 18, this is the beginning of what is going to be a long struggle for David. A struggle with Saul for the kingship of Israel. And in this struggle, David needs friendship. In fact, one commentator writes and they say, as the trials began, God gave David the precious gift of a friend. A faithful friend is a strong defence in adversity, 
a soothing medicine when one is deeply wounded. When we're faced with challenges in life, we need friends. In fact, Bob Green is a a journalist and an author and he once wrote a book called And You Know You Should Be Glad, a true story of lifelong friendship. And in this book, he, he tells the story about when this was true for him. He says, When during an already painful juncture in my life, my wife died, I was so numb that I felt dead myself. In the hours after her death, as our children and I tried in vain to figure out what to do next, how to get from hour to hour, the phone must have been ringing, but I have no recollection of it. The next morning, one of those mornings when you awaken, blink to start the day, and then, a dispiriting second later, realise anew what has just happened and feel the boulder press you against the earth with such weight that you fear you will never be able to get up, the phone rang. And it was Jack. I didn't want to hear any voice, even his voice. I just wanted to cover myself with darkness. I knew he would be asking if there was anything he could do, but I should have known that he'd already done it. I'm in Chicago, he said. I misunderstood him. I thought he was offering to come to Chicago. I took the first flight this morning, he said. He had heard. He had flown in. I know you probably don't want to see anyone, he said. That's all right. I've checked into a hotel and I'll just sit in the room in case you need me to do anything. I can do whatever you want or I can do nothing. He meant it. He knew the best thing he could do was to be present in the same town, to tell me he was there, and he did just sit there. I assume he watched TV or did some work, but he waited until I gathered the strength to say I needed him. He helped me with things no man ever wants to need help with. Mostly he sat with me and knew I did not require conversation, did not welcome chatter, did not need anything beyond the knowledge he was there. He brought food for my children and by sharing my silence, he got me through those days. Green concludes and he says, There are a handful of people during your lifetime who know you well enough to understand when the right thing to say is to say nothing at all. Those people, and there will be at most only a few of them, will be with you during your very worst times. We need friendship. Because life is hard and we can't do it alone. We weren't meant to. We also need friendship because it's through friends that God accomplishes his purposes in our lives. In fact, God used Jonathan in the life of David to help him assume the kingship of Israel. And God uses friends in our lives to fulfill his purposes for us, to make us more like Christ. In fact, Proverbs 13 verse 20 says this, The one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Now according to this verse, one of the key factors about how your life will turn out is who you are walking with in your life. In other words, this verse is saying to us, Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Or as Craig Rochelle says, your friends are your future you. Your friends are your future you. And so let me just ask you, who 
are you walking with in life? Who are you allowing to have influence in your life? Are they making you wiser? Are they making you more like Christ? Let me ask our young people this. Who are you dating? What are you looking for in a potential husband or a potential wife? Is it someone who will make you wiser? Is it someone who will make you more like Christ? As an aside, this is why the Bible assumes that Christians should marry other Christians. It's not because it's being narrow and intolerant and exclusive. It's because of the profound reality that we are undeniably shaped by those who we walk with and do life with. And so have friends, have non-Christian friends, but young Christian, let me implore you to think carefully about who you date and who you decide to marry. Because our friends, the people in our lives, they undeniably shape us. And that's the first insight we can learn from this passage, is that we need friendship. We need friendship. The second insight, the final insight is this. We need friendship founded on something more than friendship. Let me ask you this. What was the basis of Jonathan and David's friendship? I mean, why did Jonathan devote himself so wholeheartedly to David? Why did he swear allegiance to David over and above his own father and his own family? Well, it wasn't just because of some of the things that they had in common, though they did have things in common. They're both courageous warriors. They both led victories over the Philistines. But that wasn't the basis of their intimate friendship. The basis, the foundation of their friendship was their shared faith in God. One commentator says, they were bound together by their faith in the Lord. David had stood before the giant in the name of the Lord, determined to silence his blasphemies and eager for Israel to know the truth of God's power. They were, these were themes that stoked the fires of Jonathan's admiration and drew out his love for David. Their love for God. And this is exactly the foundation of our friendship in the church as well. Our shared faith, our shared love, our shared union with Christ. In fact, I love what D.A. Carson says, a biblical scholar. He says, the church, listen to this, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. See, we have something deeper than our careers and our cultural backgrounds, our political views and our parenting philosophies, our economic status, our relationship status. We are bound together by Jesus Christ. We have been saved by Jesus Christ. We are united to Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We might say it this way. We are bound together by blood, but not the blood that binds us together biologically, the blood that binds us together eternally. The blood that was shed on the cross all those years ago to save us from the penalty of our sin, to bring us into the family of God, to empower us and enable us to have not only union with our Saviour, but communion with one another in deep, genuine friendship. 
And so as I close, let me return to the story of Wesley. You see, Wesley not only had to confront his fear of loneliness, but also the question of love. Was there a place for him to love and to, to be loved? He writes, he says, My primary question over time became a question about love. Where was I to find love? Where was I to give love? If scripture was right that I shouldn't try to find a husband, surely the apparent consequence couldn't also be right. That I was therefore cut off from any deep, meaningful form of intimacy and communion. Could it? And after considering the question, Wesley goes on to write and he says, There is in fact a place for love and it's called friendship. I've become increasingly drawn to the idea that there exists for someone like me a location for my love. That by rediscovering ancient and not so ancient forms and exemplars of friendship, I might be able to rewrite the lonely future I feared would be my lot. And he concludes with this hope for the church. He says, I imagine a future in the church when the call to celibacy would no longer sound like a dreary sentence to lifelong loneliness for a same-sex attracted Christian like me. I imagine Christian communities in which friendships are celebrated and honoured, where it's normal for families to live near or with single people, where it's standard practice for friends to spend holidays together, where it's not out of the ordinary for friends to consider staying put, resisting the allure of constant mobility for the sake of their friendships. I imagine a church where genuine love isn't located exclusively in marriage, but where marriage and friendship and other bonds of affection are all seen as different forms of the same love we are called to pursue. And he summarises with these poignant and true words which are a challenge to every single one of us. He says, Not everyone can be a parent or a spouse, but anyone and everyone can be a friend. And we need to ask ourselves this morning, what kind of friend am I? Am I available for others? Am I generous with my time for others? Listen to me, you you won't and you can't be friends with everyone. I can't be friends with everyone. We only have so much bandwidth and space in our lives for deep, genuine friendships. But the reality is that every single one of us can be walking in, pursuing these kinds of friendships where we point one another to Jesus Christ. Now maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, that's right, Adam. You need to tell people that they need to be friends with me. They need to befriend me. But friendship is not something we can demand of others. It's something we become for others and it's something we are responsible to pursue. We can't isolate ourselves from others and sit on the edge of the community and then turn around and say, well, well, no one's talking to me. No no one's being my friend. If we are going to create a strong friendship culture, it's something we pursue together. It's something we are all responsible for. Now, how do we do this? How do we pursue this vision of friendship? How can BPCC become a place with a strong friendship culture? The answer is we look to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth and he said to us, I've called you my friends. We had made ourselves his enemies and he remade us and redefined us as his friends. And this is the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to become a friend of Jesus. And in fact, it it reminds me of that 
beautiful old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Did you know that that hymn was actually written by a man named Joseph Scriven? Joseph was born in Ireland in 1819, and in 1843 he was due to be married. But on the night before his wedding, his fiancée accidentally drowned and died. And so in 1857, Joseph migrated to Canada, and he was due to be married again in 1860. But again, his fiancée died before they could be wed, this time of pneumonia. And Joseph lived the rest of his life as a single man, devoted to preaching and teaching and helping others. And when we hear this, the words of this hymn take on some extra significance. Words which say to us, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Saviour, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. You will find a solace there. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you have opened wide your arms to us in Jesus Christ. You have embraced every single one of us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to open, himself, open ourselves up to him right now, the friend of sinners, so that we might become friends to one another, so that we might point one another to you and fix our eyes on that day when we will be embraced by you in fullness forevermore. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand up as we go out with these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Become mature. Be encouraged. Be of the same mind. Be at peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen.